Chapter Seventeen of Marie Antoinette and Her Son. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Lucy Liu, Marie Antoinette and Her Son by Louise Mulbach. Chapter Seven Mirabeau. Count Mirabeau must be won over count de la marque ventured to say one day to marie antoinette count mirabeau is now the mightiest man in france and he alone is able to bring the nation back again to the throne it is he replied the queen with a glow who is most to blame for alienating the nation from the throne never will the renegade count be forgiven never can the king stoop so low as to pardon this apostate who frivolously professes the new religion of liberty and disowns the faith of his fathers your majesty replied count de la marque with a sigh it may be that in the hand of this renegade lies the future of your son the queen trembled and the proud expression on her features was softened the future of my son said she what do you mean by that what has count mirabeau to do with the dauphin his wrath follows us only his hatred rests upon us alone i grant that at present he is powerful but over the future he has no sway i hope on the contrary that the future will avenge the evil that mirabeau does to us in the present but how does it help madam if vengeance hurries him on asked count de la marque sadly the temple which samson pulled down was not built again that samson might be taken from its ruins it remained in its dust and fragments, and its glory was gone for ever. Oh, I beseech your majesty, do not listen to the voice of your righteous indignation, but only to the voice of prudence. Master your noble royal heart, and seek to reconcile your adversaries, not to punish them. What do you desire of me? asked Marie Antoinette in amazement. What shall I do? Your majesty must chain the lion, whispered the count. Your Majesty must have the grace to change Mirabeau the enemy into Mirabeau the devoted ally and friend. Impossible! It is impossible! cried the Queen in horror. I cannot descend to this. I never can view a friendly looks this monster who is accountable for the horrors of those October days. I can only speak of this man who has created his reputation out of his crimes, who is a faithless son, a faithless husband a faithless lover, a faithless aristocrat, and a faithless royalist. I can only speak of him in words of loathing, scorn, and horror. No, rather die than accept assistance from Count Mirabeau. Do you not know, Count, that he honors me, his queen, with his enmity and his contempt? Is it not Mirabeau who caused the states-general to accept the words, the person of the king is inviolable, and to reject the words, and that of the queen? Was it not Mirabeau who once, when my friends exhorted him to moderation and besought him to soften his words about the Queen of France, had the grace to answer with a shrug, well, she may keep her life? Was it not Mirabeau who was to blame for the October days? Was it not Mirabeau who publicly said, the king and the queen are lost, the people hate them so, that they would even destroy their corpses? Your Majesty, Mirabeau said that, not as a threat, but out of pity and deep concern and sympathy sympathy repeated the queen mirabeau who hates us 
no your majesty mirabeau who honors his queen who is ready to give his life for you and for the monarchy if your majesty will forgive him and receive him as a defender of the throne the queen shuddered and looked in astonishment and terror at the excited face of count de la Marthe. are you speaking of mirabeau the tribune of the people she asked the fiery orator of the national assembly i am speaking of count mirabeau who yesterday was the enemy of the throne and who today will be a zealous defender if your majesty will only have it so if your majesty will only speak a gracious word to him it is impossible it is impossible whispered the queen de la marque continued since he has frequently seen your majesty since he has had occasion to observe your proud spirit and lofty resignation a change has taken place in the character of mirabeau he is subdued as a lion is subdued when the beaming eye of a pure soul looks it in the face he might be of service again he might be reconciled he writes he speaks of his exalted queen of admiration with enthusiasm he glows with a longing desire to confess his sins at the feet of your majesty and to receive your forgiveness does the king know this asked marie antoinette has any one told his majesty i should not have taken the liberty of speaking to your majesty about these things if the king had not authorized me replied count de la marque bowing his majesty recognizes it to be a necessary duty to gain mirabeau to the throne and he hopes to have in this matter the cooperation of his exalted wife marie antoinette sadly shook her head i will speak with his majesty about it she said with a sigh but only under circumstances of extreme urgency can i submit to this i tell you in advance but the case was of extreme urgency and when marie antoinette had seen it to be so she kept her word and conformed to it and commissioned count de la marque to tell his friend mirabeau that the queen would grant him an audience but in order that this audience might be of advantage it must be conducted with the deepest secrecy no one ought to suspect that mirabeau the tribune of the people the adored hero of the revolution mirabeau who ruled the national assembly in paris itself whom the freest of the free hailed as their apostle and savior who with the power of his eloquence ruled the spirits of thousands and hundreds of thousands of men no one could suspect that the leader of the revolution would now become the devoted dependent upon the monarchy and the paid servant of the king two conditions mirabeau had named when count de la marque had tried to gain him over in the name of the king an audience of the queen and the payment of his debts together with a monthly pension of a hundred louis d'or i am paid but not bought said mirabeau as he received his first payment only one of my conditions is fulfilled but what will become of the other and so you still insist on having an audience with the queen asked lamarque yes i insist upon it said mirabeau with naming eyes if i am to battle and speak for this monarchy i must learn to respect it if i am to believe in the possibility of restoring it i must believe in its capacity of life i must see that i have to deal with a brave decided noble man the true and real king here is marie antoinette and there is only one man in the whole surroundings of louis the sixteenth and that is his wife i must speak with her 
in order to hear and to see whether she is worth the risking of my life honor and popularity if she really is the heroine that i hold her to be we will both united save the monarchy and the throne of louis the sixteenth whose king is marie antoinette the moment is soon to come when we shall learn what a woman and a child can accomplish and whether the daughter of maria theresa with the dauphin in her arms cannot stir the hearts of the french as her great mother once stirred the hungarians do you then believe the danger is so great asked lamarck that it is necessary to resort to extreme heroic measures mirabeau grasped his arm with a sudden movement and an expression of solemn earnestness filled his lion-like face i am convinced of it he answered and i will add the danger is so great that if we do not soon meet it in an heroic fashion it will not be possible to control it there is no other security for the queen than through the re-establishment of the royal authority i believe of her that she does not desire life without her crown and i am certain that in order to keep her life she must before all things preserve her crown and i will help her and stand by her in it and for this end i must myself speak with her and have an audience and mirabeau the first man in the revolution had his audience with marie antoinette the dying champion of monarchy on the third of july seventeen ninety the meeting of the queen and mirabeau took place in the park of st cloud secrecy and silence surrounded them and extreme care had been taken to let no one suspect excepting a few intimate friends what was taking place on the sequestered leaf-embowered grass plat of st cloud a bench of white marble surrounded by high oleander and taxus trees stood at the side of this grass plat it was the throne on which marie antoinette should receive the homage of her new knight mirabeau had on the day before gone from paris to the estate of his niece the marchioness of aragon there he spent the night and the next morning accompanied by his nephew m de sion he walked to the park of st cloud at another gate of the park which had been left open for the secret visit mirabeau took leave of his companion and extended him his hand i do not know he said and his voice which so often had made the windows of the assembly hall shake with its thunder was now weak and tremulous i do not know why this dreadful presentiment creeps over me all at once and why voices whisper to me turn back mirabeau turn back do not step over the threshold of this door for there you are stepping into your open grave follow this voice uncle there is still time implored m de sion it is with me as it is with you i too have a sad anxious feeling may they not have laid snares for me here whispered mirabeau thoughtfully these artful bourbons who knows whether they have not invited me here to take me prisoner and to cast me whom they hold to be their most dangerous enemy into one of their oubliettes their subterranean dungeons my friend he continued hastily wait for me here and if in two or three hours i do not return hasten to paris go to the national assembly and announce to them that mirabeau moved by the queen's cry of distress has gone to st cloud and is there held a prisoner i would do it uncle said the marquis but i do not believe in such treachery on the part of the queen or her husband they both know that without mirabeau they are certainly lost and that he perhaps is able to save them i fear something entirely different and what do you fear 
I fear your enemies in the National Assembly, said M. de Sion with a pained expression. I fear these enraged Republicans, who have begun to mistrust you, since you have begun to speak in favor of royalty and monarchy, and since you have even ventured to defend the Queen personally against the savage and mean attack which Mirat hurls against Marie Antoinette in his journal, the Ami du Pepulp. It is true, said Mirabeau with a smile. They have mistrusted me, these enraged Republicans, since then, and they tell me that Pétion, this Republican of steel and iron, turned to Danton at the close of my speech, and said, This Mirabeau is dangerous to liberty, for there is too much of the blood of the Count flowing through the veins of the tribune of the people. Danton answered him with a smile. In that case we must draw off the Count's blood from the tribune of the people, that he may either be cured of his reactionary disease, or die of it. And when they told Mirat, uncle, that you had spoken angrily and depreciatingly of his attacks upon the queen, he raised his fist threateningly and cried, Mirabeau is a traitor who wants to sell our new young liberty to the monarchy, but he will meet the fate of Judas, who sold the savior. He will one day atone for it with his head, for if we tap him for his treachery, we shall do for him what Judas did for himself. This Mirabeau Judas must take care of himself. And do you suppose that this disputious little load of a Murat will hang me? asked Mirabeau with a scornful smile. I think that you must watch him, answered M. de Sayon. Last evening, in a neighborhood of our villa, we met two disguised men who, I would swear, were Perry and Murat, and on our way here, as I looked around, I feel certain that I saw these same disguised figures following us. What if it be? answered Mirabeau, raising himself up and looking around him with a proud glance. The lion does not fear the annoying insect that buzzes around him. He shakes it off of his mane or destroys it with a single stroke of his paw. And Mirabeau fears just as little such insects as Pétion and Murat. They would much better keep out of his way. I will tread them underfoot, that is all. And now, farewell, my dear nephew, farewell, and wait for me here. He nodded familiarly to his nephew, passed over the threshold and entered the park, from whose entrance the popular indignation had long since removed the obnoxious words, the parla reine, the garden belonging now to the king only because the nation willed it so. Mirabeau hastened with an anxious mind in a light step along the walk, and again it seemed to him as if dark spirits were whispering to him, Turn back, Mirabeau, turn back, for with every step forward you are only going deeper into your grave. He stopped, and with his handkerchief, wiped away the drops of cold sweat which gathered upon his forehead. It is folly, he said, perfect folly. Truly I am as tremulous as a girl going to her first rendezvous. Shame on you, Mirabeau, be a man. He shook his head as if he wanted to dispel these evil forebodings, and hastened forward to meet Count de la Marque, who appeared at the bending of the alley. The queen is already here, and is waiting for you, Mirabeau, said the marquis, with a slight reproach in his voice. Mirabeau shrugged his shoulders instead of replying, and went on more rapidly. There soon opened in front of them a small grass plat, surrounded by bushes, and on a bench opposite, the lady in the white neat dress with a straw hat on her arm, her hair veiled with black lace. That lady was Marie Antoinette. Mirabeau stopped in his walk and fixed a long, searching look upon her. When he turned again to his friend, his face was pale and bore plain traces of emotion. My friend, whispered he to Lamarck, I know not why, but I have a strange feeling. 
I have not wept since the day on which my father drove me with curse from the house of my ancestors. But, seeing yonder woman, I could weep, and an unspeakable sympathy fills my soul. The queen had seen him, too, and had grown pale, and turned tremblingly to the king, who stood beside her, half concealed by the foliage. There is the dreadful man, said Marie Antoinette, with a shudder. My God, a thrill of horror creeps through all my veins, and if I only look at this monster, I have a feeling as though I should sicken with loathing. Courage, my dear Marie, courage, whispered the king. Remember that the welfare of our future, and of our children, perhaps, depends upon this interview. See, he is approaching. Receive him kindly, Marie. I will draw back, for you alone shall have the honor of this day, and monarchy has in you its fairest representative. But remain so near me, sire, that you can hear me if I call for help, whispered Marie Antoinette. The king smiled. Fear nothing, Marie, he said, and believe that danger for Mirabeau is greater than for you. The name of criminal will be fastened not to us, but to Mirabeau, if it shall be known that he has come to visit us here. I will withdraw, for there is Mirabeau. And the king withdrew into the thicket, while Mirabeau stopped near the queen and saluted her with a profound bow. Marie Antoinette rose from her marble seat. At this moment she was not the queen giving an audience, but the anxious lady, advancing to meet danger, and desirous to mitigate it by politeness and smiles. "'Come nearer, Count,' said Marie Antoinette, still standing. But as he approached, the queen sank slowly upon the seat, and raised her eyes to Mirabeau, with an almost timid look, who now did not seem to her a monster, for his mien was disturbed, and his eyes, which had always been represented as so fearful, had a gentle, respectful expression. Count, said the queen, and her voice trembled a little. Count, if I found myself face to face with an ordinary enemy, a man who is aiming at the destruction of monarchy, without seeing of what use it is for the people, I should be taking at this moment a very useless step. But when one talks of a mirabeau, one is beyond the ordinary conditions of prudence and hope of his assistance is blended with wonder at the fact. Madam, cried Mirabeau, deeply moved, I have not come here as your enemy, but as your devoted servant, who is ready cheerfully to give his life if he can be of any service to the monarchy. You believe, then, that it is a question of life, or, if you prefer, of death, which stands between the French people and the monarchy? asked the queen sadly. Yes. I am convinced of that, answered Mirabeau, but I still hope that we can answer the question in favor of the monarchy, provided that the right means are applied in season. And what, according to your views, are the right means, Count? Mirabeau smiled and looked with amazement into the noble face of the queen, who, with such easy composure, had put into this one short question what for centuries had perplexed the greatest thinkers and statesmen to answer. Will your majesty graciously pardon me if I crave permission, before I answer, to put a question in like manner to my exalted queen? Ask on, Count, replied Marie Antoinette, with a gentle inclination of her head. Well, madam, this is my question. Does your majesty propose and aim at the re-establishment of the old regime, and do you deem it possible to roll the chariot of human history and politics backwards? You have in your question given the answer as well, said Marie Antoinette with a sigh. It is impossible to re-erect the same edifice out of its own ruins, 
one must be satisfied if out of them a house can be built in which one can manage to live ah your majesty said mirabeau with feeling this answer is the first ray of light which breaks through the heavy storm clouds the new day can be descried and hailed with delight after hearing this noble answer of your majesty i look up comforted and the clouds do not terrify me longer for i know that they will soon be passed that is if we employ the right means and now i repeat my question count what according to your view are the right means first of all the recognition of what is wrong answered mirabeau and the cheerful and honest will to do what is found to be necessary well tell me what is it that is wrong mirabeau bowed and began to speak to her in his clear sharp way which was at the same time so full of energy of the situation of france the relation of the various political parties to one another to the court and the throne in strongly outlined sentences he characterized the chiefs of the political clubs the leaders of the parties in the national assembly and spoke of the perilous goal which the demagogues the men of the extreme left aimed at he did not from delicacy speak the word republican but he gave the queen to understand that the destruction of the monarchy in a throne the annihilation of the royal family was the ultimate object aimed at by all the raving orators and leaders of the extreme left the queen had listened to him with eager fixed attention and at the same time with a dignified composure and the earnest thoughtful look of her large eyes had penetrated and moved mirabeau more and more so that his words came from his lips like a stream of fire and kindled a new hope even in himself all will yet be well he cried in conclusion we shall succeed in contending with the hidden powers that wish to undermine your majesty's throne and to take from the hands of your enemies these dangerous weapons of destruction i shall apply all my power all my eloquence to this i will oppose the undertakings of the demagogues i will show myself to be their public opponent and zealously serve the monarchy making use of all such means of help as are adapted to move men's minds and not to trouble and terrify them as if freedom and self-government were to be taken from them and yet which will restore the credit and power of the monarchy are you then with honest and upright heart a friend of ours asked marie antoinette almost supplicatingly do you wish to assist us and stand by us with your counsel and help mirabeau met her inquisitive and anxious look with a cordial smile a noble and trustworthy expression of face madam he said with his fine resonant voice i defended monarchical principles when i saw only their weakness and when i did not know the soul nor the thoughts of the daughter of maria theresa and little reckoned upon having such an exalted mediator i contended for the rights of the throne when i was only mistrusted when calumny dogged all my steps and declared me guilty of treachery i served the monarchy then when i knew that from my rightful bemissled king i should receive neither kindness nor reward what shall i do now when confidence animates my spirit and gratitude has made my duties run directly in the current of my principles i shall be and remain what i have always been the defender of monarchy governed by law the apostle of liberty guaranteed by the monarchy i believe you count cried marie antoinette with emotion you will serve us with fidelity and zeal and with your help all will yet be well i promise yon that we will follow your counsels and act in concord with you you will put yourself in communication with the king you will consult him about needful matters and advise him about the things which are essential to his welfare and that of the people madam replied mirabeau i take the liberty of adding this to what has already been said 
the most necessary thing is that the royal court leave Paris for a season. That we flee? asked Marie Antoinette hastily. Not flee, but withdraw, answered Mirabeau. The exasperated people menace the monarchy, and therefore the threatened crown must for a while be concealed from the people's sight, that they may be brought back to a sense of duty and royalty. And, therefore, I do not say that the court must flee. I only say it must leave Paris, for Paris is the furnace of the revolution. The royal court must withdraw as soon as possible to the very boundaries of France, and must there gather an army and put it under the command of some faithful general, and with this army march against the riotous capital, and I will be there to smooth the way and open the gates. I thank you, Count, I thank you, cried Marie Antoinette, rising from her seat. Now I doubt no more about the future, for my own thoughts coincide with those of our greatest statesmen. I, too, am convinced the court ought to leave Paris, that it must withdraw in order to escape new humiliations, and that it ought to return only in the splendor of its power, and with an army to put the rebels to flight, and breathe courage into the timid and faithful. Oh, you must tell the king all this. You must show him that a removal from Paris is not only a means of salvation to the crown, but to the people as well. Your words will convince the noblest and best of monarchs, who will follow your counsels, and thanks to you, not we alone, but the monarchy will be saved. No, go to the work, Count. Be active in our behalf. Bring your unbounded influence in favor of the king and queen to bear upon all spirits, and be sure that we shall be grateful to you so long as we live. Farewell, and remember that my eye will follow all your steps, and that my ears will hear every word which Mirabeau shall speak in the National Assembly. Mirabeau bowed respectfully. Madam, said he, when your exalted mother condescended to favor one of her subjects with an audience, she never dismissed him without permitting the favored one respectfully to kiss her hand. It is true, replied Marie Antoinette with a pleasant smile, and in this, at least, I can follow the example of my great mother. And, with inimitable grace, the queen extended her hand to him. Mirabeau, enraptured, beside himself at this display of courtesy and favor, dropped upon his knee and pressed his lips to the delicate white hand of the queen. Madam, cried he with warmth, this kiss saves the monarchy. If you have spoken the truth, sir, said the queen with a sigh rising and dismissing him with a gentle inclination of her head. With excited and radiant looks, Mirabeau returned to his nephew, who was waiting for him at the gate of the park. Oh, said he with a breath of relief, laying his head upon the shoulder of Salion, what have I not heard and seen? She is very great, very noble, and very unhappy, Victor. But, cried he with a loud, earnest voice, I will save her, I will save her. Mirabeau was in earnest in this purpose, and not because he had been bought over, but because he had been won, carried away with the noble aspect of the queen, did he become from this time a zealous defender of the monarchy, an eloquent advocate in behalf of Marie Antoinette. But he was not now able to restrain the dashing waves of revolution. He could not even save himself from being engulfed in these raging waves. Mirabeau knew it well, and made no secret of the peril of his position. On a day when, before the division, he spoke in defense of the monarchy and the royal prerogative, and undertook to decide the question of peace or war, on that day he first announced himself openly for the king, and raised a storm of excitement and disgust in the National Assembly. Still, he spoke right bravely in behalf of the crown, and while doing so, he cried, I know well that it is only a single step from the capital to the Tarpian Rock. 
Step after step, and these successive steps Mirabeau was soon to take, Petion had not in vain characterized Mirabeau as the most dangerous enemy of the Republic. Murat had not asserted, without knowing what he said, that Mirabeau must let all his aristocratic blood flow from his veins or bleed to death altogether. Not with impunity could Mirabeau encounter the rage of parties and fling down the gauntlet before them, saying, at the same moment, he would defend the monarchy against all attacks, from what side soever and from what part soever of the kingdom they might come. The leaders of the Republican factions knew very well how to estimate the power of Mirabeau. They knew very well that Mirabeau was able to fit together the fragments of the crown which he had helped to break, and to prevent his doing this, they knew that he must be buried beneath these fragments. Soon after his interview with the queen, after his dissenting speech in behalf of the prerogative of the king, Mirabeau began to fail in health. His enemies said that it was only the result of overexertion and a cold which he had brought on by drinking a glass of cold water during a speech in a national assembly. His friends whispered about a deadly poison which had been mingled with this glass of water in order to rid themselves of this powerful and dangerous opponent. Mirabeau believed this, and the increasing torpor of his limbs, the pains which he felt in his bowels, appeared to him to be the sure indication of poison given him by his enemies. The lion, who had been willing to crouch at the foot of the throne for the purpose of guarding it, was now nothing but a poor sick man, whose voice was lost and whose power was extinguished. For a season he sought to contend against the malady which was lurking in his body. But one day, in the midst of a speech which he was making in behalf of the queen, he sank in a fainting fit and was carried unconsciously to his dwelling. After long efforts on the part of his physician, the celebrated Cabanus, Mirabeau opened his eyes. Consciousness was restored, but with it a fixed promotion of his approaching death. I'm dying, he said softly. I'm bearing in my heart the funeral crape of this monarchy. These raging partisans want to pluck it out, deride it, and fasten it to their own foreheads, and this compels them to break my heart, and this they have done. Yes, they had broken it, this great strong heart in which the funeral crape of monarchy lay. At first the physician and his friends hoped that it might be possible to overcome his malady, but Mirabeau was not flattered by any such hope. He felt that the pains which were racking his body would end only in death. After one especially painful and distressing night, Mirabeau had his physician Cabanus and his friend Count de la Marque summoned to his bed and extended to them both his hands. My friends, he said to them with a gentle voice and with peaceful face, my friends, I am going to die today. When one has brought to that pass, there is only one thing that remains to be done, to be perfumed, tastefully dressed and surrounded with flowers, so as to fall agreeably into that last sleep from which there is no waking. So call my servants. I must be shaved, dressed, and nicely arrayed. The window must be opened, that the warm air may stream in, and then flowers must be brought. I want to die in the sunshine and flowers. His friends did not venture to oppose his last wish. The gladiator wanted to make his last toilet, and be elaborately arrayed in order to fall in the arena of life as a hero falls, and even in death, to excite the wonder and the applause of the public. All Paris was in this last scene the public of this gladiator. All Paris had, in these last days of his battle for life, only one thought. How is it with Mirabeau? Will he compel the dreadful enemy death to retire from before him, 
or will he fall as the prey of death? This question was written on all faces, repeated in all houses and in all hearts. Everyone wanted to receive an answer from that still house, with its closely drawn curtains, where Mirabeau lived. All the streets which led thither were, during the last three days before his death, filled with a dense mass of men, and no carriage was permitted to drive through the neighborhood, lest it should disturb Mirabeau. The theaters were closed, and without any consultation together, the merchants shut their stores as they do on great days of national fasting or thanksgiving. On the morning of the fourth day, before life had begun to move in the streets of Paris, and before the houses were opened, a cry was heard in the great highways of the city, ringing up into all the houses and entering all the agitated hearts that heard it. Flowers! Bring flowers! Mirabeau wants flowers! Bring roses and violets for Mirabeau! Mirabeau wants to die amid flowers! This cry awoke slumbering Paris, the 2nd of April, 1791, and, as it resounded through the streets, windows and doors opened, and hundreds, thousands of men hastened from all directions towards Mirabeau's house, carrying nosegays, bouquets, whole baskets of flowers. One seemed to be transferred from cool, frosty spring weather to the warm, fragrant days of summer. All the greenhouses, all the chambers poured out their floral treasures to prepare one last summer day for the dying tribune of the people. His whole house was filled with flowers and with fragrance. The hall, the staircase, the antechamber, and the drawing room were overflowingly with flowers. And there, in the middle of the drawing room, lay Mirabeau upon a lounge, carefully dressed, shaved and powdered, as if for a royal festival. The most beautiful of the flowers, the fairest exotics, surrounded his couch and bent their variegated petals down to the pale, death-stricken gladiator, who still had power to summon a smile to his lips and with one last look of affection to bid farewell to his weeping friends, farewell to the flowers in the sunlight. On his lofty brow, on his smiling lips, there was written, after death had claimed him, after the gladiator had fallen, the dying one greets you. The day of his death was the day of his last triumph, and the flowers that all Paris sent to him were to Mirabeau the parting word of love and admiration. Four times daily the king had sent to inquire after Mirabeau's welfare, and when, at noon, on the 2nd of April, Count de la Marque brought the tidings of his death, the king turned pale. Disaster is hovering over us, he said sadly. Death, too, arrays himself on the side of our enemies. Marie Antoinette was also deeply moved by the tidings. He wanted to save us, and therefore must die. The burden was too heavy. The pillar has broken under the weight. The temple will plunge down and bury us beneath its ruins, if we do not hasten to save ourselves. Mirabeau's bequest was his counsel to speedy and secret flight. We must follow his advice. We must remove from Paris. May the spirit of Mirabeau enlighten the heart of the king, that he may be willing to do what is necessary, that he may be willing to leave Paris. End of section 21. Chapter 17. Read by Lucy Liu.